good to see you. Welcome. My name is Julene Jackson. I'm, I'm, this is the second week I've been without my sweetheart, Al. He is in Utah tonight, but he is, uh, we'll, be, we'll be team teaching still. He's with two of the older kids. I think he played golf with our oldest son today. And sometimes you, he's got a few business meetings in Utah and checks in on uh, a daughter that lives there. And it just so happens our, our basketball boy is there for a few days. So so he will be coming, uh, uh, we'll be coming together. We're 3,000 miles apart tonight, but I think we're still going to be able to uh, be a team. Um, Al, uh, out of the goodness of his heart, helps me to teach these classes in the evening. Um, I've been with Moms for America for 10 years, and I have been attending cottage meetings. Cottage meetings are, are discussion groups of, of men and women. I, I uh, actually started a woman's group during the day. And they still meet uh, 11, 12 years later every Wednesday for two hours. And they learn principles of liberty and freedom and have been inspired to do amazing things within the four walls of their homes, within their communities, within their school communities at the state level and even at the national level. So I know how transformative it is to come together and to study and to learn in, in homes. Since COVID, we started teaching cottage meetings online and it's been really effective. It's been a way to, you know, be able to teach families all over the country. But uh, there's something really magical about meeting, you know, in a home setting or a church setting or where you can, you know, share each a village of each other's hearts and teach one another and share experiences. And we pray and the spirit of God is always there. We laugh, we cry. And, and there are some of my dearest friends, even to this day, even though I've moved far away from uh, where I started my cottage meeting, I still am in touch with uh, those women. So, you know, I have seen the effects of um, a mother, learning principles of liberty and freedom, learning about the constitution, about the stories of America, and then coming home and teaching it to her children. And ultimately to my grandchildren, it'll be interesting to see how the Lord inspires me to teach my grandchildren. I have some ideas. And so, you know, you are not going to most immediately see the results maybe with your children and grandchildren, but you are going to be planting seeds of, of a, a mother or a grandmother or father, or grandfather who love America because they are seeing you. you. You're talking probably about these cottage meetings and, you know, you might be going home uh, and, and teaching some of the things that you're learning each week. You know, you've seen, I actually do a little daily devotional text to my kids because most of the kids are out of the home. Al gets it as well. And or I'll send Al or I will send our kids articles. I'm sure you do all of that. We continue to take our kids to historical sites, even when they're adult children. We still plan, you know, to go to sites. And we certainly we just came back from Hawaii. And I can't tell you how much we talked about current events at the pool and at the beach, you know, uh, abortion right now. And and the arguments that people are putting forth why Roe v. Wade shouldn't be you know, overturned or talking about the, the shooting in Buffalo a few days ago in relation to the shooting. Did you know there was a shooting in uh, Brooklyn last month? Uh, 33 people were injured, but it didn't fit the narrative of a, a white supremacist racist country because it was a black man, a 62 year old black man who did the shooting that injured 33 people. And so you didn't hear too much about that incident a month ago, but you're certainly hearing a lot you know, about the Buffalo 18 year old uh, white gentleman shooter. So, you know, we talk about how the enemies of freedom, how they, you know, certain narratives that promote division based on race or gender or that kind of thing is, is being put forth in the news and how other things are being hidden. And so I hope you're having these kind of discussions with your children and with your grandchildren. You know, the Lord has promised us that if we will train up our children in the way that they should go, they will not depart from it in Proverbs. And uh, so I'm studying right now. Last week, we talked about, you know, trying to unearth and figure out the mystery of the Old Testament. And I'm studying this year, the Old Testament as well in our church. And I this week I was reading from Deuteronomy. 
And there's those beautiful scriptures in Deuteronomy. I love the book of Deuteronomy. It's Moses's like little summary of the 40 years of wandering of the children in the Israelite in the in the wilderness, the Israelites in the wilderness. And in Deuteronomy, it talks about six, seven chapters, uh, uh, six verses seven, to teach our children diligently when we walk us with them and when we talk with them and when we sit down with them and lie down and rise up up to to be teaching our children and our children's children. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting that the Lord doesn't want our children and our grandchildren and our posterities to forget him, to forget his dealings, to forget his laws. And so he admonishes us repeatedly in the Bible to teach our sons and our sons' sons. And we want to do this so that, so these principles of godly law and God's dealing and even, you know, of, of freedom and liberty will be written on their heart. It will not be written on their heart if we aren't intentionally teaching our children and grandchildren certain things. And it, it tells us in John in the New Testament, there will be no greater joy than to hear that our children walk in truth. And isn't that certainly the, the, the truth, as we see our little children, the fruits of our labors of us coming together and learning these things, and, and it won't be made manifest, maybe not for years. But, I, I, you know, we, Al and I taught pr these principles of liberty from the 5,000-year leap for the last decade in our home and our morning devotionals. And it's so interesting when we come back now with our adult children, they just know certain things. And I think it's because the foundation we laid of all those years of them rolling their eyes and not responding so well some mornings when we were teaching them. But as we teach them these principles, it's like teaching the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the, the gospel of freedom goes hand in hand with teaching them the principles from the Bible, because how can we have the religious liberties to live our lives according to the dictates of our own conscience if we're not living in an environment of maximum freedom? And so, you know, I think learning these principles of liberty and freedom that we've been studying now for the last seven weeks, we come, we're on our seventh class out of the 12 classes. I think these principles are like learning godly principles from the Bible. I mean, you can't just read the Bible one time, you know, peruse them and think, okay, I got it. I, I know how to be godly now. It's a, it's a, a pursuit of a lifetime of consistent study. And I think we need to consistently study principles of liberty and freedom and stories, you know, of, of America and, and overcoming and, and the miracles of, of God being with civilizations that turn to him. And, you know, as we, as we do this, we will write these principles on our hearts and we'll begin to understand how these principles apply are the solutions to the problem today. So you're getting, you, you might be hearing the principles for the first time in this class. And so you're having a hard time maybe trying to apply it to an issue of the day. Just like when you read the Bible for the first time, you have a hard time finding a personal application for what you're reading in the Old Testament. But as you stick with the study of the word. And as you stick with studying principles of liberty, you begin to, you know, it's so much easier for me now to, to read a headline of a newspaper and realize we're not abiding by this principle of liberty. This is why we have this problem in our country today. And so we are on our seventh class. We're on principles 14 and 15 this week. And remember, these principles are, are like miraculous under these principles of liberty we went from the the an ox and the cart and the plow and the horse that we had been using for the previous 5000 millennia 5000 years uh, once we you know uh, began to experiment on these principles and embed them in our founding documents within uh, under 200 years we were putting a man on the moon at least human ingenuity and creativity and and um, this experiment on freedom it works and we've got the proof to show that it works so last week we were we uh, talked about principles 11 12 and 13 11 meaning that we have the right to alter and abolish governments that be have become tyrannical that is written right in our declaration of independence and we mostly can alter them through elections that's why you know honest, 
elections are imperative to the republic. We don't have honest elections. We don't have a republic. We can't alter and abolish governments that have become tyrannical. And we can certainly restore the constitution. That's when we, we can alter uh, our existing government that is starting to look very much like a democratic, socialistic form of government. So go back and watch those 16 classes of the healing of America that teaches you how to heal America and what you can do to be a part of healing the constitution. We talked about principle number 12, how our founders intended this government to be a republic by the voice of the people, representative government, as they studied, you know, uh, Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, and as they studied the Anglo-Saxons, that God's law was the best way to maintain this form of government, of self-government. So they knew that the people needed to be virtuous and morally strong and be looking to God in order to maintain a government that was going to be based on natural law, God's law, and that we were going to have to elect good people. And the only way that we we're going to stay virtuous and morally strong and have good leaders is to, to maintain religion and to teach the five points of religion in our schools. Our founders wanted knowledge, religion, and morality taught in the school systems. So when we began to pull God out of the school systems in the 1950s, our test scores have gone down. Our kids are not doing so well anymore. They're being duped by this idea of socialism and uh, critical race theory. And then principle 13, we talked about how the constitution should be structured based on the rule of law uh, because they knew that the, uh, our leaders would have frailties and, and, uh, and so they wanted a constitution to keep us, uh, a, you know, attached to the rule of the law, not to what our leader of the day or the popular trends of society is saying is acceptable. And we saw that a few weeks ago when President Biden, our little elderly President Biden, a little grandpa and father is, is defending, you know, abortion because he himself is a child of God. I'm thinking, wow, that's a frailty of our president here. Thank goodness the Constitution in Amendments 9 and 10 says that only limited uh, and carefully defined powers should be delegated to the federal government. All others shall be retained back to the states and for the people to decide. So the Constitution never uh, wanted the federal government to determine abortion. It's for the people at the states and the people in those states to decide. And that's what overturning Roe v. Wade would do. So I hope we have our books. I hope we have KimberCurriculum.com. We've got our little bookmarks. Are you starting to try and, and, and memorize these little principles that'll be your best friends? Um, remember, the Jacksons have been studying these principles for years and years. So if you're not completely getting how these principles are applying to the problems of today, just stick with it. As you are consistent, you will start to see the wisdom, the solutions are had in these principles of liberty. So the 14th principle says life and liberty are secure only so long as the right to property is secure. And we talked about this in uh, principle number eight. Uh, where it said all men are endowed with certain inalienable rights. And one of them is to own property. We also talked about how Blackstone and other thinkers said, you know, the three great natural rights of man is personal security, personal liberty, and the right to uh, private property. Under English common law, a most unique significance was attached to the inalienable right of possessing, developing, and disposing of property. Land and the products of the earth were considered a gift of God, and they were to be cultivated and beautified and brought under dominion, as it says in Psalms. Uh, Even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. Now, John Locke, the, that wonderful English philosopher and physician that our founder studied, born in 1632, died in 1704. He pointed out that the human family originally received planet Earth as a gift of God and that mankind was given the capacity and responsibility to improve it. And uh, John Locke talks about the development of the Earth was mostly going to be done by a private endeavor. 
it tells us in Genesis that the creator asked us to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Because dominion means control, it requires an exclusiveness. Private rights in property become an inescapable necessity or an inherent aspect of subduing the earth and bringing it under dominion. It is obvious that if there were no such thing as ownership in property, which means legally protected exclusiveness, there would be no subduing or extensive development of the resources of the earth. It would be perfectly lawful for a lazy, covetous neighbor to move in as soon as the improvements were completed and take possession of the fruits of his industrious neighbor. And even the covetous neighbor would not be secure because someone stronger than he could come in and take it away from him. So without property rights, four things would occur. Number one, people would have a tendency to completely lose their incentive to improve, all right? They lose the incentive because they don't own something. And we saw this with Jamestown and even Plymouth when they were practicing Christian communism, no one owned any land. So after a while, some people's backs started to go out on them because they were gonna they were gonna get the benefits of the food and so forth, even if they didn't work at it because everything was owned in, in common. So um, when people can't own something, it destroys the incentive of the industrious person to develop and improve on more property. Number two, the industrious individual would also be deprived of the fruits of their labor. It would squash their desire to work especially hard because they're not going to own what they're working for. Number three, marauding bands could be tempted to go into the country and confiscate by force or violence the good things that others had frugally and painstakingly provided if no one owned uh, property. And number four, mankind would be impelled to remain on bare subsistence levels of hand-to-mouth survival because the accumulation of anything would invite an attack. So John Locke talks about how a person's property is a projection of his life itself. It's an extension of a person's life, energy, and ingenuity. And if you try to destroy or confiscate their property, in reality, it's an attack on their essence of life itself, the labor of his body and the work of his hand. How is ownership acquired? John Locke says, well, ownership is acquired by labor. In the paragraph before how ownership is acquired, it talks about, well, who owns the little nuts and the seeds and the acorns out in society? I mean, when do you actually own those things that, you know, God has created on this earth? Is it, is it when it's digested or when you eat it or when you boil, whatever it is, or when you bring it home or when you pick it up? And, um, and it says here, it is plain if it's that first gathering that made that acorn or that nut or those apples his, all right? It's the first gathering that made them not his. If, if, if that gathering didn't make him his, nothing else would. So how is ownership acquired? It's through the labor. It's through the gathering of the actual apple and acorn that now gives you that entitlement to private right. And so thus, this law of reason makes the deer that, that maybe the Indian who has killed it, it's allowed to be his goods who have bestowed his labor upon it, though before it was the common right of everyone else. But whoever put forth the labor to get it, it is therefore his. So are property rights sacred? A Supreme Court justice by the name of George Sutherland said, if it is, it is not the right of property that is necessarily protected, but the right to property that is. To give a man his life, but then to deny him his liberty is to take from him all that makes his life worthwhile living. To give him liberty, but to take away from him the property, which is the fruit and badge of his liberty, is still to leave him a slave. I love this quote, and then I'm going to turn it over to Al. 
um, that Abraham Lincoln in the same spirit says, property is the fruit of labor. Property is desirable. It is, a, it is a positive good in the world that some should be rich shows that others may become rich and hence is just in encouraging to industry and enterprise. Abraham Lincoln says, let not him who is houseless pull down the house of another, but let him work diligently to build one up for himself, thus by example, assuring that his own shall be safe from violence. I take it that it is best for all to leave each man free to acquire property as fast as he can. Some will get wealthy. I don't believe in a law to prevent a man from getting rich. It would do more harm than good. So, you know, this beautiful free market that we're going to talk about tonight is going to say, is is going to encourage people getting wealthy. You know, in, in this day and age, you know, with the quality uh, you know, it's almost a crime. It, it's not right to be so rich. You know, that seems to be the thought being taught in the school systems, but that's completely contrary to what our founders knew to be true. So Al is going to take us uh, on in and finish out this 14th principle. Under primary purpose of government is to protect property. Okay. okay Thanks, Jelini. Yeah, that was, I hope you saw that slide on the screen of Lincoln, which is that was a profound statement. So as Jeline indicated, the primary purpose of government is to protect property. So one of the issues that led to the Revolutionary War was the Crown's attack on individual property rights. And how do you attack property rights? You do it through various kinds of taxation. And I think what made it even more onerous for the people is that it was without their consent. So that term taxation without representation began during the Revolutionary War because it was actually a violation of English common law. Because if you remember back to the Revolutionary War and and the colonists, they actually considered themselves English citizens and were wondering why they were being treated differently. So as as Julian indicated, John Locke talks a lot about property When you go back to the Declaration of Independence, those first two paragraphs, it talks about, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So in the original draft that Thomas Jefferson wrote, he actually had life, liberty, and property. And Franklin said, I don't think it's a good idea to use the word property because the issue of slavery was so prevalent and they didn't want to highlight that notion. But the pursuit of happiness really was similar to property. So that so and, and, and the, the Declaration of Independence goes on and says that to, secure, to, to that to secure these rights, excuse me, governments are instituted among men to protect that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they derive their power, their just power from the consent of the government. So that's the purpose of government. People form governments to protect their rights. And as it goes back to one of the principles we discussed earlier, I believe it's principle eight, that the primary purpose of government is to protect equal rights, not provide equal things. John Adams, excuse me, Jeline. It was principle seven. Principle seven. Okay, thank you. So John Adams said that property must be secured or liberty cannot exist. Okay, so the next session of the text talks about should government take from the haves and give to the have-nots? I, I love talking about this principle because when you forcibly take from those who have and give it to those who have not, it violates that biblical principle of stewardship. So you as an individual, you own your property, but you're willing to give a portion of that property to those who have not, and you give it in the spirit of love. And it's received in the spirit of love by that individual who's receiving that gift. So in that scenario, God enters in, and so does the spirit and blesses that exchange. Now, 
Satan always comes up with a counterfeit program to the God's, God's program. So Satan's plan involves force, thereby compromising your agency. So the government takes it from you in the form of high taxes. You're not happy about it. And the person who receives it has no idea where it's coming from. So they consider it an entitlement. Then there is no God involved in that. And that's where we find ourselves today. And how do politicians stay in office? They give goodies to the people. That helps them stay in office. That's why they stay in office as long as they do to amass that power so that they can take from those who have not and give it to those who have not and create a dependency and a constituency that's going to vote for them. So if you, if you think about some of the issues we have today, like looking at the issue of immigration, it's not about compassion, regardless of what one party says to you. It's, it's about power. And it used to be that those coming across the border were coming to look for opportunity. And then many would go back home, back across the border with the money that they earned in America to take care of their families. Unfortunately, the government is now incentivizing illegal immigration through the, with the process of providing free health care, free programs, free money, baby formula, whatever you, 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 can, you can imagine. They are giving it away to these illegal immigrants, encouraging them to come across the border. And in New York City, unfortunately, they're, they're registering a lot of them to vote to keep them in power. So this plan is to create a voting constituency of dependence. And as I said before, it's all about staying in power. So one of the things that we talk about in seminar four of the Healing of America seminar is to read the, the idea of repealing the 17th Amendment, which involves having, instead of having the people by popular vote vote for their senators, the original intent of the founders was to have the senators selected by the state legislature, thereby the states would then control that senator. So if you repeal the 17th Amendment, thereby returning that power to the states as the founders intended, you would have immigration reform and secure borders. As the senators would go back to serving the interests of the states they were supposed to represent in the first place. So taking from those that have to give that those who have not further creates a dependency upon the government, which is why the other side is working so hard to destroy religion so that people look to, look to government, not God. That's really what they're focusing on. And that's why we've got in our schools, our government schools, the kids are being taught to focus primarily on race, gender, and sexual identity the issues that don't have an end in mind as it's Christianity that's keeping that side from doing whatever they want based on feelings. If you can get people to act on their feelings and move away from the rule of law, then, and, and, and in order to do that, you've got to get rid of Christianity because Christianity is based on God's law, God's commandments. It's also Christianity that opposes gay marriage. Their message to those that they're trying to indoctrinate is don't worship God, it's too hard. Worship us and the government will take care of you. We'll give you a, a nice little ATM card instead of food stamps. You don't have to marry the father of your children. We'll take care of your housing, your health care, and your food. And if we get the right president office, we'll even get you a cell phone. Their aim again is to replace God with government. That therefore, it creates a dependency and keeps them in power. That's why they love the notion of taking from those who have and giving it to those who have not. And as indicated before, they, the way to abuse people's property is through high taxation. So what are the results of this? 65% of the federal budget, 65% of the federal budget is dedicated to mandatory expenditures. And they are Medicare, Social Security, in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And guess what that totals? That's $4 trillion. 
the, unfortunately, the government only collects about $4 trillion. And the federal budget in FY21 was $6.8 trillion. And so now that leaves us with a deficit of $2.8 trillion because most of the federal budget are those entitlements, taking from those who have and giving those who have not. So redistribution of wealth, according to the text, is unconstitutional. So before 1936, the court said so up until the Butler case. Before 1976, the Supreme Court said that the redistribution of wealth is unconstitutional. Now, the Butler case came about in 1936, and it was adjudicated right in the middle of the Depression to justify Franklin Delano Roosevelt's plan to use the government to take care of the people. There are those who are well-intentioned, but they will use an emergency to move away from the founding principles of this nation. And it's because they're not rooted in the original intent of the founders who created the solutions to the problems we have today. A perfect example is, is what we're gonna discuss in the 14th principle, and it's the original intent of the framers to have the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof in the hands of the people through their elected representatives. We're gonna talk about this in number 14. This meant that money would be backed by precious metals of gold and silver so that the economy would be directed through the natural law of supply and demand. And under this system, there would be no inflation and the price of goods would stay low. So I was born back in the 60s. Does anybody remember 30 cents per gallon for gas? We know what it is today. So let's go back to the Butler case. And I'm gonna read from the text in the book. The Butler case completely changed the general welfare clause to permit the distribution of federal bounties as a demonstration of the concern for the poor and needy taking advantage of an emergency. The founders wanted this responsibility fixed on the local communities and at the state level in emergencies, never for the federal government. This violates that principle of all men are created equal as it puts the government in the position of picking winners and losers. The original intent disallowed this from happening as you couldn't fund a bridge to be built in New York while, uh, while ignoring other parts of the country. So they completely, because of the Butler case, took the general welfare clause and coupled that with the repeal or the addition of the 16th Amendment, which needs to be repealed, that allowed the federal government to go around the states and go right into your pockets. And because of that, we have a $30, $30 trillion worth of debt. Soon the interest on that debt, which we have to pay every year based on the collected revenues through our tax, through taxing people, will pass the defense budget. Defense budget and last year, FY22, was $750 billion. So we're getting close to paying that interest on the debt. Okay, so that's basically why the federal government or the Federal Reserve was created to get us off the gold standard, as I highlighted before, which would allow for the unlimited printing of money to satisfy the government's desire to spend and make the folks on Wall Street rich as they would loan that printed money to the government, then charge them interest. And the creation of the Federal Reserve also consolidated power in New York as many small mom and pop banks were driven out of business. But you remember that movie, It's a Wonderful Life? That, that, that couldn't happen today. There's, there's very few small banks in our country. Okay, so caring for the poor without violating property rights. I touched on this a little bit before, but so how do you do that? How do you care for the poor without violating property rights? Well, the first thing you do is you leave the decision-making authority local not making decisions on caring for the poor and needy in Washington, D.C., which we do today. And, and doing so, leaving it at the local level, preserves the freedom that empowers the people to come up with remedies outside the, the expropriation of one's property through high taxes. 
the local community can come up with innovative ways to look after the poor and needy. You don't have to take it. You don't have to listen to Washington, D.C. to direct the local affairs of your community. Those decisions would be left locally. Okay, Jelaine, back to you to highlight the 15th principle. Thank you. Okay, so we've been studying the 14th principle, and now the 15th principle piggybacks with that 14th principle. It says the 15th principle, the highest level of prosperity occurs when there is a free market economy and a minimum of government regulations. Right. This is a principle of freedom that our founders understood very well, which makes it so interesting right now because the rise of socialism is increasing. This idea of the government being in charge and having its hands in everything and taking care of us and telling us what to do. And we certainly saw that uh, ratcheted up over the last two years with all the government lockdowns and the uh, COVID measures and mandates. And we, we're just accepting this kind of heavy maximum government regulation. And, you know, we've, we've seen firsthand how destructive it's been to businesses for the government to tell them when they could open and what they could do and what measures that they that could operate in. What it did with that kind of, you know, oversight and, and regulation maximum of our businesses, it eliminated a lot of the competitors. A lot of small businesses went, have gone out of business in the last few years, and it, it's cleared the road for the corporate monopolists. So you think of all the big airlines and hotels and uh, cruise industries, they got a lot of bailout money from the government. And look, they're, they're back bigger and better than ever charging higher prices than I we I mean we we fly a fair amount and what we're paying on airfare right now is astronomical, and and what did all this uh, oversight and regulation the last few years with the governments getting involved in the markets? Well, it has eliminated a lot of the small businesses, the government intervention, and in the meantime, our children are really being taught to embrace socialism. And they're not taught the dismal failures of you know, past societies. Uh, rather, there being this ratcheted notion of you know, critical race theory that's rooted in socialism and Marxism that, you know, that you're oppressed because of the rich people and it's not good to be too rich and the government needs to equal things out so, you know, instead of the free market that loves all the opportunities that are afforded, even, you know, the little guys to uh, get ahead and excel, now the free market uh, principles, free enterprise capitalism is being, you know, uh, presented as the, the wealthy who oppress the small guys, who are abusing the small guys instead of highlighting all the opportunity that you get living under a nation of free market principles. Young people are not being taught that when you destroy free markets, you ultimately end up destroying the liberty because uh, competition is eliminated and you become dependent on just a few, uh, a, a few entities. So what's the best way to counter what our kids are being taught is, is education. Education is the best way to turn this dangerous threat of romanticizing socialism that young kids are getting in the school systems and the universities, where, you know, they just, it's such an acceptable thing for young people to assume that the government is going to take care and solve the problems that they can kind of be commanded in all things by the government. That's why it's so important that we understand principle 14 and 15, because our founders knew that, you know, the highest level of prosperity for everyone would come under the form of these free market uh, principles. Now the founders were um, fascinated with this possibility of setting up a political and social structure based on natural law, God's law, all they could see is, look, there is an order of this universe. There is a creator and it is his order. It is his natural law, uh, his godly law that we will follow. Therefore, we will have the, the strongest governments and the most stable relationships between one another. But what about economics? Are there natural laws for economic, for the marketplace? 
Well, right at this time that the founders were asking this question in the 70s, a wonderful scholarly volume of books were published just in the nick of time that gave the founders this answer of natural economic law. It came out in 1776. Does anyone have this book? The Wealth of Nations by um, uh, Adam Smith. He was a college professor in Scotland. So they, Adam Smith was really a contemporary with our founders. Now this is an, I, I, I think we have this book. Do we have this book out? The Wealth of Nations? I have never read this book. No, we do not. Oh my word. Why do, why do we not have this book? It, it's not necessarily easy reading. Maybe you read it in some of your college classes. I mean, it's, it's an economics book. It's pretty, it's pretty complicated. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated book, but really it was, it, 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 this book was like a, was a watershed, a turning point between mercantilism that was being practiced back then, kind of this form of trading and bartering, to moving into the doctrines of a free market economy. And so it really fit into the thinking and the experiences of what the founders were envisioning. And Thomas Jefferson actually said, in the political economy, I think Smith's Wealth of Nation is the best book extant existing. It's the best book existing right now. That's what Thomas Jefferson said about the Wealth of Nation. So Adam Smith's Free Enterprise Economics was first tried in America, all right? Nowhere on the earth were these principles being practiced by any nation of size or consequence. The United States was the first people to undertake structuring the whole national economy on the basis of natural law and this free market concept, which includes these six points here, okay? This is what makes America, uh, our economy, uh, great, that they were going to move into a specialized production. So if a person is really good at something, let let the person do what they do best. Number two, there's going to be an exchange of goods without governmental interference, okay? Let the markets, the supply and demand, this natural uh, supply and demand with no government imposed monopolies. Number four, prices were going to be regulated by competition on the basis of this natural flow of supply and demand. And that number five, there would be profits. And that would be a good thing. And number six, competition was a good thing. That it, it was looked upon as a means of ultimately improving quality and increasing quantity and ultimately maybe bringing the prices down. So if you don't have the stomach for um, <laughs> the Wealth of Nation, these Title Twin books, I just bought 12 of them for $100 on Amazon. And I think they're in the Moms for America store. But it, it, in, a, in a child's form, it teaches you the, um, the free market. And it's really cute. I read it tonight. They have a book called The Food Truck Fiasco that explains the um, supply chain or the creature of Jekyll Island, which explains to kids with pictures the monetary system and what happened with the Federal Reserve and, and a road to serfdom which talks uh, about why socialism isn't good. So these are great little books that... I learn just as much out of kids' books as I do when I read them to my kids or to my grandkids. I don't have grandkids yet, but I will be reading them to my grandkids someday. So I would recommend getting these little title twin books. Just Google it on Amazon or go to our Moms for America store. And so um, uh, Smith said there were four laws of economic freedom. And they are the freedom to try, the freedom to buy, the freedom to sell, and the freedom to fail. Now, a little over 100 years living by these free market principles, by 1905, the United States, you've heard Al and I use this um, fact before, the United States, within about 120 years living under these free market principles, became the richest industrial nation in the world. Even though we held 6% of the land, of the Earth's continent, the, the land, and only had 5% of the world's population, the American people were producing over half of the wealth in the form of clothes and food and houses and transportation and communication and other 
luxuries. And this is a tribute to Adam Smith's free market principles. Now, he said that the role of government in economies, in the economies is the greatest threat. Government oversight is the greatest threat to economic prosperity. And we have seen this when governments have gotten involved in, in fixing prices or uh, fixing wages, maybe through unions or controlling production or controlling distribution, think of farm subsidies or granting uh, monopolies, special exceptions to big companies. Think of the special uh, financial um, helps that Disney or, or those type of businesses have had in the past or subsidizing when the government subsidizes certain products. He said that was the greatest threat to <laughs> prosperity and to the free market principles is when the government would get involved in commerce at this level. So you can, we're seeing it firsthand with this formula, baby formula problem, that when the government subsidizes certain products, it will ultimately create a supply chain, supply chain vulnerabilities. Because when you subsidize a program like the government has done with WIC and, and children's foods and, and that kind of thing, it wipes out and limits competitors and the choices that people might have because uh, the government is subsidizing. So it's just not as profitable for businesses to, to um, be in, in the market. And so formula companies. So what you saw was just uh, a handful of uh, formula uh, factories. And, it, you know, if you get a problem or two with a factory or the government decides to send a lot of formula overseas to Ukraine or wherever, then all of a sudden we have a shortage because the government has, has intervened and has subsidized uh, the baby formula. And hence we got a a law passed yesterday, $28 million law regarding the, the formula. So, so we're having this problem because the government uh, intervened in subsidized certain products. Now, there are four legitimate areas, Adam Smith says, that governments really should uh, oversee and police and prevent. Number one, they should prevent illegal force in the marketplace to compel purchases or sell of products. And when I thought of an example of that, up came fake news. When we allow false information, it actually spurs people. They feel like they have to, you know, they, they have to act on, on false information. So I thought that was interesting that fake news was an example of illegal force in market places to compel purchase or sells a product. Think about that one. The government should, should be involved in the markets in preventing fraud, in misrepresenting the quality, location, or ownership of items. And I'm sure we have plenty of governmental agencies that put regulations on fraudulent products. And you can see that's probably not a bad thing. Number three, they should prevent monopolies, which eliminate competition and result in restraint of trade. Well, we're seeing we're, we are subsidizing uh, industries. And so in a, in a way we are forming monopolies and uh, the government should um, prevent debauchery of cultural standards and the moral fiber of society. Debauchery is like a, an indulgence in extreme pleasure. So the government should, you know, prevent that from happening in the form of pornography or obscenity or drugs or look uh, and all those things, you know, lead to more, you know, liquor stores or prostitution or gambling. It's interesting as the courts have gotten more and more loose with free speech, we've seen the standards of decency that communities are supposed to be setting for their own communities being overruled by the federal courts. And so we haven't the, the federal government has not done a very good job at keeping debauchery out of, um, or, or they've been protecting debauchery is what they've been doing. Think of all the legal, all the states that have legalized uh, drug use now and, and so forth. And so um, what, what happened to these free market principles after the 1900s? Al uh, will explain after 1900, Adam Smith's principles got lost in the shuffle. What happened, Al? 
it started with this fellow right here, Karl Marx, because socialism and communism started to become popular around the turn of the 19th, uh, around the 1900s, around the, the start of the 20th century. And so this young man here was born in 1818. He was born a man of means. He came from wealth. He was a spoiled, rich kid who thought he knew better, uh, did not like religion, wasn't into God at all. In fact, he thought religion was an opioid that allows people to be oppressed by capitalism. He thought that the private ownership of the means of production, which we just talked about in the previous two principles of property and Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and capitalism, that it was built on the backs of the workers and that the workers would rise up and have a revolution, a violent revolution, to go after those at the top, the capitalists, and turn the system up upside down. So Karl Marx argued that history is the result of material conditions rather than ideals. And materialism has its roots in humanism. No God, it's all about the man. And he was void of those ideals that created our country. All men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Those are the ideals that, were, that the United States was founded upon. So I went through a lot of trouble to look for his, and I think I've shown this to you before, but this is one of his uh, baby pictures. And so I, I, I went through great lengths to find this, but even his parents knew what he was going to end, eventually end up being. Okay, so let's talk about this whole notion of the monetary system to corn money was supposed to be, and the regulation there was supposed to be in the power of the people. So at the Constitutional Convention, the founders determined that they would make the American dollar completely independent of any power or combination of powers outside of the American people. They therefore gave the exclusive power to issue and control money to the people's representatives, which is the Congress. So all money was supposed to be coined in precious metals. And those paper notes, because carrying around too many coins became cumbersome, they would issue paper notes, but those paper notes were backed by gold and silver, backed by gold and silver. And I want to read you a quote by, and this talks about the creation of the Federal Reserve, which has helped us get into the condition that we are in today. If the American people ever allow the banks to control the issuance of their currency, first by inflation and then deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property. How do we deprive people from property? High taxation. Until their children will wake up homeless on the continent their fathers occupied. The issue the issuing power of money should be taken from the banks and restored to Congress and to the people where it belongs. And so why would Jefferson say such a thing? So at the, at, right after the Constitutional Convention, when the America was just getting started uh, under the Constitution, they began, they actually set up a bank. They set up a bank, a central bank. And, and Jefferson, because they were coming out of a devastating depression and were under, and wonder, were under pressure from both European and American financial institutions to pay their debts, they created what was exactly almost close to what was done in 1913 with the creation of the Federal Reserve. So this, this was one responsibility of the government that never was completely fulfilled. And so what came out of that in the early 1900s was this notion of fractional banking. This is when the bank is allowed to issue three or four times more paper notes or loans than it has in assets. And those assets are gold and silver. This is called fractional banking because the bank has only a fraction of the assets needed to back up the paper money or credit, which is issued. So that term run on the banks came very popular during this time. 
And one of the reasons that the Federal Reserve was created was to present, prevent this run on the banks. They didn't want people to come and, and get their money out of the bank because the banks were loaning out their money without it being backed by gold and silver. And so Jefferson, in that last quote that I read to you, foresaw, he, he was a, a seer in his day. He foresaw that the banks, and, and this statement that I'm going to say is, a, is we can compare it to what's going on today. So Jefferson foresaw that the banks would inflate the economy by loaning out this fictitious paper money with low interest rates to induce people borrowing money. And these, and this, these paper money, this paper money had no assets like gold and silver behind it. And this, this would create a boom economy by lowering interest rates and encouraging people to borrow this free money. That's what our government is doing. So, so then the banks who had lured those borrowers into this precarious position of being over leveraged because they're borrowing too much money, they would then call for a bust by raising interest rates, then foreclose on the property for which the bank had virtually furnished for nothing. It furnished for nothing. And, and that's, I'm fearful of that's where we're headed now. We've, we've had a, a booming economy, particularly before COVID, low interest rates, free money, free money, free money. Now the interest rates are starting to rise. And now it, our, our, this, our, our economy is overheating. We've got massive inflation and we're headed for a bust. And that means it, it could mean economic calamity for our country. And then the bank comes in and gobbles up what they just loaned the money for that was backed by nothing. So in subsequent administrations, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Lincoln tried to put the genie back in the bottle because actually this was Alexander Hamilton's idea of creating this central bank. And later on in life, he actually admitted he was wrong and that Jefferson was right. But when they went, both went to George Washington with their ideas, Washington sided with Hamilton and created the central bank. But Jefferson, he started it, Jackson and Lincoln tried to put that genie back in the bottle and they, they had some success, much to the chagrin of what's going on in England, as Jolene highlighted. Here we are, someone in Europe who wrote a book about the wealth of nations, but it wasn't accepted there, it was only accepted in America because in England they had a central bank. And this is the statement, I'm gonna close with Jolene before I turn the time over to you. But it says the London Times came out with this editorial. That mischievous financial policy, which had its origin in, in the North American Republic during the late war in that country, which is the Civil War, going back to Lincoln, should have indurated down to a fixture. Then that government will furnish its own money without cost. It will pay off its debts and be without debt. It will have all the money necessary to carry on its commerce. It will become prosperous beyond precedent in the history of the civilized governments of the world. The brains and the wealth of all countries will go to North America. That government must be destroyed or it will destroy every monarchy on the globe. I, I don't think I could say it much better. I think that is a powerful concluding statement. And they recognize that in Europe. That's why, and that's why we're moving to this one world globalist agenda. So back to you, Jolene, to summarize. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, sweetheart. It was so you fun. Know, I, I, oh, I just, I, you, we, we kind of ended on a downer, but hey, there is hope. There is hope. The Lord works through small means to fulfill his purposes and heal the land. And it's so interesting. I was just doing my scripture study this morning in Deuteronomy. And it talks about the natural law of economies in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 11 and 12. The Lord says that if we will live his laws, that we will be, we will have plenty in good, plenteous in goods, the fruit of the earth 
we will have uh, plenty of fruit of the earth and of the land. We will find good treasures and the work of our hands will be blessed and we will be able to lend unto many nations and not have to borrow. Says that right in Deuteronomy. So it's interesting to me that as, you know, we're, we're in the word, we can glean these natural laws of economics that, you know, that, that is embedded throughout uh, the Bible. And, um, uh, you know, a podcast that I really like that I listened to last week, we were talking about various podcasts is called Don't Miss This. Don't Miss This. Just Google Don't Miss This uh, YouTube. And they go through, you know, in a year's time, they'll, they'll, this extra commentary that helps bring to light, uh, you know, the Old Testament. But as we learn these principles this week of the natural law of, of economics, as we learn and we teach not only, you know, the blessings of godly law, but natural law in relation to liberty and freedom to our children and to our grand- grandchildren, it will teach them to, to walk after, you know, natural law and godly law and natural law of economies. And, you know, just as they'll learn to love the word of God, they'll learn to love freedom and liberty as we teach them the beauty of, you know, these free market principles. It's interesting um, in Deuteronomy, it talks about this Jewish prayer for those that might be Jewish. You could really school us in it, the Shema. Uh, you know, uh, it's a, a Jewish prayer of all the blessings of God and the miracles and the and and the stories of how He came through for them in the in the wilderness and there to you know put this little blessing and on phylacteries or on their arms or in frontlets between their eyes or even uh, is it the, called the, 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 the mezuzah? Is that it? And put it on your door as you enter to their homes. That's right. And, and it reminds them of God's law and his dealing. And they learn to write that on their heart. And, and if they do, it says in Deuteronomy 28, that these blessings of this godly law, this, you know, the creator of the universe, his order of things, you, we will be blessed if we follow his order of things, including this, this natural law of economics. But if not, in Deuteronomy 28, and all of Deuteronomy reminds us, we will have cursings. If we do not teach our children to love godly law in all areas, then we will be overtaken, it says in Deuteronomy, with cursings. And just think of the cursings that we're seeing on the land as we veered away from this, this godly law of economics, you know, as, as we've seen welfare uh, become our solution and how welfare uh, you know, discourages people from marrying and it's broken up families and it's created people, you know, they'd rather just get a check from the government or an unemployment check. And, and, you know, that leads to idleness, which leads to crime and to drugs. And, and we're seeing these cursings overtake our land because we're not teaching our children to love, to be self-reliance and to work hard by the sweat of their brow and to save. And so, you know, I think, these principles in 14 and 15 are worthy of going back and, and reviewing them this week because these principles are really under attack because our kids are beginning to think that socialism, that government being involved in business and being involved in regulation and being involved in commerce is, is the way because we're not cap- capable. The markets aren't capable and that's completely false. And so, you know, let's go back and let's let's, let's uh, review this and let's get our little Tuttle Twin books. They're so great. I didn't know you can get them free on Glenn Book. There's actually 12 of these books with various issues of the day. And so I know I paid $100 for mine. They're like $10 a book. It's just a good inv- investment for your, liber- your I Love America library. Your I Love the Free Market and Capitalism library. I would, I would get these. But as we're, as we're taking our kids to God in, in the scriptures and we're taking them to principles of liberty and freedom as we study in our cottage meetings and we reteach, you know, our Healing of America seminar this summer, um, I, I want you all to go through the Healing of America seminar. Again, they're all recorded online at Moms for America and get these books. 
and learn these principles and then teach them to your children. I, I said a few weeks ago, I would show you this book. It's called Teaching Children the 28 Principles of Liberty by Dr. Chris M. Jolly. All right. I, it's, it's a pretty good little book. And um, it's just another resource, you know, to be honest with you for the last 12, 13 years, I would just, you know, we take one principle a week in our family devotional and we would just have the kids like read a little paragraph, that principle, and we just try and talk it through and hash it out. Well, what does that mean? So that's how I, we taught our kids the 5,000 year leap, but you know, there is this book here by Mr. Chris M. Jolly, just Google it and see if it, if it comes up. I'm, I'm hoping it's still in print. I got it a few years ago. Just another resource to teach them these principles of liberty and freedom. But in the healing of America, you're going to learn some of these great stories uh, that you can teach your children of the miracles in America. And also this book, these 12 lessons, uh, you know, there's a wonderful Tyler taught uh, principle or a lesson number 11 on self-reliance, which goes right along with our principle 14 and 15 um, a few weeks ago, but that lesson is also recorded online. So as we, as we look to God and that government to figure out our problems and we take our children to God and in prayer to God, you know, when we have issues or when we're short on money or when we need a job or when we need an increase in pay, let's work hard. Let's go to the Lord and pray as if everything depends upon the Lord. And then you get out there and you work as if everything depends upon you. And if you do that, good things will happen. So you, you teach these kids and grandkids, uh, these, these things in a, a family devotional setting or send off a little text or ask the Lord, how can I teach my adult children these principles? Maybe I can send them off a little quote from, uh, you know, our 5,000 year leap uh, a couple times a week or, or invite them to join our cottage meeting. So we keep studying, we keep learning these principles and then we ask God, okay, what should I do? How, how can I shore up my children or grandchildren's knowledge of the free market principles? Uh, you know, and, and how can I encourage them to have a desire to get after it and own their labor and work hard instead of sitting back for a program or a check or a, a reparation or a, an entitlement like so many young kids are thinking is acceptable? So that is your, that's your homework this week is to review and um, the principles and then to ask God, how, how can I bone up on these free market principles and how can I reteach them to the next generation? Because God has said we're to write these truths on their heart when we walk with them, when we talk with them, when we lay down, when we rise up, teach our, our sons, sons, our grandchildren so that they can write it on their hearts so they can continue on and perpetuate what God has given them. Because these principles will give us the highest level uniformly uh, of prosperity these free market principles. So next week, we're going to be on principles 16, 17, and 18. We're going to do three principles. 